0: Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your
1: podcasts.
2: I'm Chris Batchelder.
1: And I'm Jennifer Habel. Our new book is Day's Work. Chris Batchelder
0: and Jennifer Hable are husband and wife. She's a poet, he's a novelist. So they each have their own independent writing careers. But during the pandemic lockdown, they teamed up to co-author a novel titled Day's Work. It's a fictional log of a woman's research during the pandemic, particularly her fascination with Herman Melville. But it's also a look at this fictional couple's relationship and other pet tangents. I recently spoke with a couple about Day's Work, which was described by a friend of mine as a novel that reminds you why you've devoted your life to books. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Now, I was having a difficult time describing this book to some co-workers yesterday, and I was reminded of a sentence within the book, which describes a book by Elizabeth Hardwick, Sleepless Nights follows no plot, owes no influences, and belongs to no genre. How would you describe Day's work? Do you
1: have an elevator speech for it? We could probably use an elevator speech. I don't think we have one yet. (laughs) Um, But I agree, it is a hard book to describe and in some ways even a hard book to hold in my head. Um, It felt like we were trying to get across an expanse of information in a way and then look back and sort of saw where we got and what we had made i definitely see it as fiction because of the narrator who resembles me but is not the same as me although it has auto fictional aspects to it uh, but formally it's a a unique book I don't know if you want to talk about that yeah
2: well i think it's it's something of a log And there are logs within it, ships logs and a log that documents one poet's crying at one point in her life. So uh, I think of it as a log of a woman's research during the pandemic that is outward, although she's also reckoning with things in her own house and in her own life.
0: The narrator quotes a Melville biographer who said that it's difficult to know how much of typey is, quote, pure imagination, how much is wishful thinking and how much is fact. And this seems like a good question for Day's work as well. You know, how much is pure imagination? How much is wishful thinking? And how much is fact? The book
1: comes out of my obsession with reading about Herman Melville during the pandemic. So in that sense, it's fact um, that it it does document an experience that I had. It, It in some ways documents our collective experience during the pandemic and I think does in some ways document our marriage, although a lot of the things in the book about the marriage are made up. So it, it I think, tells the truth about our relationship, but in a fictional way, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, there's a truth there to the relationship, and it's obviously based on us. But the way it was written, we are both trying to get the narrator's voice right. And then when the husband talks, we're both trying to get the husband's voice right. So it was an interesting exercise that we were each trying to do each character.
1: And I think the narrator's voice actually has a good bit of Chris in it, as well as me. Yeah. So talk to me
0: about your decision to give this novel the form that it has with the many one-sentence paragraphs that speak to each other across pages. I noticed a lot of callbacks, like the way Melville misspells daguerreotype, or the narrator learns what foxing is and, and then describes foxed pages later in the text, were you looking for a form that would draw connections between many sources and moments in the novel, or is it meant to tell us something about our narrator, or or both?
2: Oh, both. That's a great question. I think I think both the uh, the repetitions and echoes that you're talking about are an attempt to give some structure and shape and gather in this uh, really digressive mass of information. But I think also uh, we wanted to dramatize or enact her research during the pandemic. So to try to dramatize her mind, engaging this material one sentence at a time, trying to pin it to the page in a pretty precise way, then with some white space in between and then a next line that relates to the previous line and in that way show her movement, which is a pretty careful movement through this uh, material that she's trying to engage. So obviously what she is noticing and what she cares to comment on, we hope is a mirror that says something about her as well, even if she's not talking about herself.
1: One of the ways I see the book is that the narrator is conducting an audit of sorts of Herman Melville's life. And I think indirectly of her own. And so I feel like sh- with each thing she says, she sort of says, here's a fact. And then she thinks, where can I go from that fact? You know. And so I, so I think the form reflects in some ways that emotional state she's in. This is true. And this is true. And this is true, if that makes sense.
0: So I guess I want to talk about perspective and voice and and maybe even process. Because if a reader were to experience this without seeing an author byline, we would think that this was written by a singular woman. You know, you've talked about how Chris's voice shows up in the narrator's voice. I guess I want to know, how did you work together to create such a consistent and unique voice for this narrator? And what was your co-writing process like? Because I also, Jennifer, you you are a poet, and this was also so very poetic throughout. So I guess I, I'm i basically asking about process. What was your process like?
1: Well, we sat together at our dining room table and used one computer, Uh, I was the typist, but we basically wrote each sentence together and we did that out loud to a large extent. So we we would sort of say like, what about this? What about this? And then kind of settle on something and both look at it on the screen as we worked. And one of the things that was really fascinating about this experience was the sensation that the book was almost sort of sitting out there in front of us, sort of separate from each of us. And we were both kind of just trying to make it together. So it was was really fascinating.
2: It's a very strange experience not to be trying to realize one's own vision in a novel, because that's the typical experience. You're trying to dramatize or enact this vision that you have for your novel. And then this one just didn't work like that. As Jen says, it was like it's separate from us. It was not my vision and it was not her. So we're, we're working together and offering it up to the book sort of that's what it felt every day offering up these sentences one of us would take a stab at a sentence the other one would edit it and together we'd sort of mold it and then send it toward the book and see if the book wanted it or rejected it it was a very deliberate way of working a completely new way of working
1: and the book had to be written basically in order I think maybe in part because of this process we did go back and revise it significantly after we'd made it through the first draft but It did feel like it had to move in order, probably in part because we were working that way. Yes.
0: I'm curious about the title of the novel because we see the phrase day's work pop up in a few different ways in the text. What is it about the text that this phrase is representing?
1: Well, I think that goes back to what Chris said about the book being a log of sorts. And in some ways, you know, for us, sometimes just one line was our day's work. But, you know, it's sort of a collection of, of our day's work. But it also, you know, connects to uh, Melville writing about his day's work in in his one of his famous letters and also to the Norwegian team that wrote across the Atlantic, Harbo and Samuelson, whom we write about in the book a little bit. And they kept a log in which they would record their day's work would be 65 miles and then 135 miles. On one day, they, you know, ungrammatically wrote day's work as one word. And uh, we just we liked that.
2: Yeah. We, we think they did. That's the funny thing. Oh, that's like we, true. We
1: haven't we, actually seen We log. saw
2: like a transcription we tried to find the log and couldn't, but anyway, we, we were taken with that day's work. And it's also, in addition to what to Jen just said, it was her, it was our narrator too, her day's work. That's what she was doing during the pandemic and sort of, sort of checking in. It's a weird thing to do, but people had weird obsessions during the pandemic. That was hers and that was her day's work. And the novel takes, you know, it's a short book, but it takes place over roughly a year.
1: I think it also speaks to this idea too of, how do your days work? Do they work? You know, there's, we, we quote uh, from Robert Hass at one point about, um, oh, now I'm losing the quote. It's like some lives seem to work and some don't basically is the idea.
2: Yeah. So he says it's brutal the way oh, yeah. some lives seem to work and some don't. And we, we repeat that a couple of times. And that, so that work, that, that, that notion of work is playing into the title as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I do want to talk about the, you know, you mentioned that this took place during the pandemic over the course of a year. And it seems for our narrator is, you know, and probably a lot of other people, was a, a time of deep reflection. Is there some significance for the pandemic to be the environment in which the narrator
1: explores what it means to have a justified life, to borrow a phrase from the novel? I think mortality was on our minds so much during the pandemic. And... Some of the taking stock of life maybe connects to being in that emotional and mental state of the pandemic. I think the um, obsessive and monomaniacal quality of her pursuit of information was enabled in some way by the quarantine aspect of the pandemic.
2: Turning 50, which we both did in short order during the project, and she did as well, and her husband did as well in the book, That's a significant milestone and has you thinking about your life, certainly. The pandemic for us was crucial to writing the book, for sure. I don't think we would have written it together had the pandemic not thrown us together in quarantine. To get to your question, I think it was vital for the narrator as well to have that time, to have that space, and to have that contemplative or reflective zone that's peaceful in a way, but there's um, outside the house there's this dread. Right. Or there's this sense of danger lurking out there.
1: And I mean, I also experienced my obsessive reading as a coping mechanism, too, during the pandemic. It was a diversion. It, I was sort of escaping into thinking about this other time and place and person, probably as a way of coping with the anxiety and precariousness and tragedy, you know, that was going on in our own lives. OK, so you talked about um, turning 50
0: and your characters also turned 50 during this time. Talk to me about the age of 31.
1: Yeah, that was a fun thing that came up when we started realizing, you know, how many people in the book had done something at age 31. I think, uh, you know, we probably could not have written this book together earlier in our writing careers in part because when we were younger, I think we each had our own individual aspirations and ambitions. And it, it seems like it at age 31 for these people, they they had a grand idea. They had a grand notion of what they might accomplish and uh, who that would mean they were. And I have felt with age less of a, first of all, less of a almost defined sense of myself. I, I feel myself more sort of diffused into the world and the ether in a way I didn't when I was younger. And I'm also less interested in myself than I was. So I don't know, I, I think 31 and resonated in this this time of great ambition. And I think they were all men, right, too, who, who yeah, were so. trying to make their, stick their claim, you know, make their place in the world and in history.
2: Yeah, I, that's there were so many that just got, that was so fun when we just start checking, like, all right, let's check their age because maybe they were 31 and they were over and over. So of course it's a coincidence, but there's also something there about um younger adulthood ambition um the sense of striking out by yourself or making a name for yourself and as jen said like that that becomes less important or it's become less important to us like collaboration would not have been interesting or appealing to me even five years ago probably certainly not 10 or 20 when you just want to strike out as an artist and make a name for yourself and it um the ego fades and it was so nice to just care about the Art object, just this thing that Jen said was separate from us, just to care about trying to get this right and not have it be an extension of my own identity or my own ambition.
0: You know, you mentioned that these people at age 31, they were all men. And in the book, you quoted a recent article saying Melville Studies is built on a history of women's labor that has largely been erased and, when recognized, discounted. And I'm reading this right on the heels of a conversation I had with Anna Funder about her book Wifedom, which is about – this. look at George Orwell's first wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, who, like the women in Melville's life, was also erased. And the narrator in your novel, who is also a wife, is struggling with moving for her husband's work. In what ways do you see your novel call the attention to the invisible wife and in her day's
1: work? I think it does do that somewhat persistently and intermittently. And actually the origin of my interest in Melville was actually through an article that focused a lot on Melville's uh, sister, Augusta, and also his wife to a certain extent. Jill Lepore wrote an article that was published to the New Yorker originally that talked about how Moby Dick was written at Arrowhead and how the women in his life copied the book, contributed to it. Uh, Augusta may have had her own ambitions writing wise that were not realized. So that was where this began. And, and I began actually by reading about the women in Melville's life, but after a little bit became really fascinated, obsessed with Herman Melville himself. So moved in that direction, you know, this has been sort of an abiding interest for me through the years, just how art gets made, who contributes to its making, uh, who is who is helping the artist as they make their work, who's, who's giving them food and taking care of their children and keeping their house. And it's been a thing that Chris and I have navigated through our marriage too, as we've both tried to be writers in the same house. You know, so um, in some ways... This working together was a wonderful evolution in that, you know, where we weren't competing for resources in the same way that we have through the years. How many wormholes and deep dives had
0: to be cut when you were doing your research and doing your writing? And you said this went linear day by day. Did you have to do any any mapping out? the rhythm and, and the flow was so close to that of a, a day flowing in the mind rambling and conversation flowing with starts and stops. The narrator mentions post-it notes often. Did post-it notes take shape on a wall somewhere? I mean, how how did you determine what stayed and what went
1: and what not? So much went, you know, so so much information that we gathered did not appear in this book. One one of the things we sometimes would talk about is if we started the book over again, it would be a totally different book, totally different. I mean, there was there was so much that could have been there and wasn't. And this, I think, represents sort of one one. Uh, if you if you swim across the ocean of Melville, this was one route that could have been taken. I mean, it's obviously a route that reflects you know our obsessions to some ways, and particularly mine. You know, just connected to the women in Melville's life and that sort of thing. In terms of just logistically, it's I, I mean, I have these drawers of just typed notes. Just they're just uh, chaotic and and just sort of crazy looking. And there were tons of uh, post-it notes which I put in a baggie and put in a box somewhere. So there's there's a lot of you know physical detritus from the experience, and it would just sort of come down to you know which sentences were able to get written we would try to sort of chart it out we we would we would come to a kind of an end of the day and then try to say well maybe tomorrow we'll do this but but very often that's not what we would end up succeeding in doing the next day and we do something different but i will say at a certain point and chris was the person who was good at this we we had to give the book a kind of a shape and and give it a, an arc and a sense of time and and that was one of chris's real contributions to the book was helping us do that
2: another contribution was setting us back repeatedly by <laughs> over planning <laughs> trying to think about where we'd go just and I'd tell Jen you know what we do this we could go there and go there and she would say yeah you know let's just see I'll see you in the morning and let's see um how that goes and then immediately we'd write a sentence and the sentence just took us in a way that was unplanned and so all that planning went for naught and it's just a book where every sentence you're at a crossroads almost every sentence could lead to something else about melville but about all these other tributary figures that we had as well so you we just had to be attentive to like the last not just the last sentence but the last clause and the last word sort of and where it might lead we cut 5000 words from the book which is a tenth of the book and that if you if you write a book where every sentence leads to the next and you cut 5000 words you have to you know it's almost surgical then you have to go in and stitch together two sections that didn't originally touch Right. And then you have to create transitions that sometimes could be created with a word or a sentence, but sometimes needed a half a page or a page or a new digression to. So that was that's the challenge of the structural principles that we had created early.
1: I will say it was a fantastic day when we returned all the books to the library (laughs) and got them out of the house. It it felt it felt so good to relinquish them back to the library and it, it just stacks and stacks of books.
2: There are also just, we each had pet things like, I wish we could get this in this book. I wish, especially me, I just can't let go of stuff. Like if I like it and Jen's great at like, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. Like, But so there are things that we had, each of us said just would like to get in, didn't get in. And as we're revising at the last minute, you know, at the last minute, there's suddenly a spot for something, something we loved had to go. And then there's a spot for this thing that we, for two and a half years maybe had had on our computer and had wanted to get in.
0: So the narrator wrote in the book, perhaps one day I'll visit the Herman Melville Memorial Room, provided it reopens, provided I can travel, provided I'm still interested. Are you still interested?
1: There's this place in the book where we quote uh, Jeff Dyer, right? Where he talks about, uh, I would say that was he was quoting D.H. Lawrence. That's right. But it's basically saying, like, I would say that you shed your, oh, Lauren said you shed your sickness in books, right? And then Dyer said, I would say you shed your interest, something like that. Yeah,
2: like writing a book is the way to shed your interest in a topic.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and that, un- sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, go ahead. What that undoubtedly happens. Like I wrote a book about Upton Sinclair years ago and people, you know, want to reach out to me about Upton Sinclair. And I'm like, Upton who? Like <laughs> you just, you, <laughs> you kind of, you spend it, right? But we're still in the middle of this so it hasn't faded but we did go to the melville room to talk about your question a little bit we did go and it was really fun to see arrowhead and walk around the grounds get a tour with the you know the tour guide telling us about melville and we we felt like we knew it all already but that was a thrill to to see the room Mm
1: -hmm. i've lost my interest in learning about melville's life but i actually think i'm going to read a bunch of melville now that the book is over because it did not feel possible to also be really closely reading his books while writing this book because i think we would have wanted to quote him endlessly so i'm actually kind of want to pan all the way out and just enjoy his writing now
0: did you have anything else you wanted to talk about that i didn't ask
2: yeah i think one of the things the book does is explore the relationship or tension maybe between domesticity and adventure and I just think it was, it was so like, in our case, it was thoroughly domestic sitting at our dining room table every day, but it also felt like we were on this adventure. It was a a new adventure as artists and it was a new adventure as a spouse, you know, relating to each other in this way after we have been married a good 20 years. And we had Harbo and Samuelson in that boat that day when we found them, we were like, this is interesting. We followed them and... We came to think of ourselves in a boat, I think, rowing across the ocean of Melville. And so it seems absurd to say, but this book felt adventurous in that way, even though we were home home for a year.
1: Yeah. It's a gift to well into a writing career and well into a marriage to be surprised by the path that you take. So I'm grateful for that.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, the book is Day's Work. Chris Batchelder and Jennifer Hable, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Beth.
2: Thank you so much.
0: That was Chris Batchelder and Jennifer Habel, co-authors of the novel Day's Work, which was published by W.W. Norton & Company. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torrin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.